I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to Going Off Track. Welcome. Welcome. I felt like I get this weird affectation of my voice. I'm like, why do I do that? I talk normal the whole podcast, <laughs> always. And then when like you're like, do the intro, I'm like, hey, everyone. <laughs> you know, you want to get them excited. I want to get wanna, them excited, I want yeah. to bring you up to your level of excitement. Yeah, and uh, admittedly, I don't get very outwardly excited. <laughs> this is about as amped up as I get. You have had a fair amount of uh, Stumptown. Too much. That's Too much. I had a whole canister the frozen or the cold yeah (laughs) it tastes so good though i know it tastes delicious you're supposed to cut it i cut it with almond milk oh okay (laughs) and ice um today on the podcast jeremy devine um owner of temporary residence records and jeff rickley singer for united nations and thursday and solo artists and uh yeah, Jeremy is putting out the new United Nations record, which we talk about here, but more importantly, maybe we talk about Jeremy's whole kind of career, his experiences in Louisville, you know, getting into music, discovering Slint, starting Temper Residence, who's put out amazing albums, you know, by bands like Explosions in the Sky, Mono, Envy, it goes on and on. Uh, Jeremy is just a guy who's in it for the right reasons, and uh, I feel like Temper Residence is not just because I'm on the label, but I would say is one of the coolest labels around from sort of the packaging to the attention to detail to the kind of overall vision. So we thought we'd have Jeremy and Jeff come by and uh, sort of talk about how they got to where they are, their views on art, and um, yeah, just sort of tell their story. So it's a cool episode, and um, I hope you like it. Today I'm going off track. Our <laughs> guests are Jeremy Devine from Temporary Residence and Jeff Rickley from United Nations. Hello. How are you guys doing? Hey there, good. Wait, can you hear when I drink water? No, I don't. Does it make a sound? Can anyone hear when you drink water? <laughs> Thank you for asking Wait, that, can though. can I swear? <laughs> yes, you can swear. Can you swear while drinking water? That's the key. <laughs> I want to talk to you about hardcore. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the 90s. I want to talk about Louisville. I want to talk about your label too, but I mean, how did you sort of get exposed to kind of like that scene, like in Kindle, Endpoint, and all that kind of stuff? I love that in Kindle's the first band you brought up. So yeah. like, when I think of Louisville, I think of like I think of like Falling no, Forward, 
Yeah. And Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. I think of Fun all those bands because yeah. I got into like that initial stuff like later. Like I went to like the first Crazy Fest and like yeah. I was really. That was fun. I was there. Were you there, yeah. really? The indoor one? Yeah. Isn't with that, uh, <laughs> the guy from In Kindle was the host. Yeah. Mark, What's his name? Mark Bricky. Mark Bricky. Yeah. Mark Bricky. And nice. yeah, Grade played twice. They were right. my favorite band. They were Again, I just to our listeners, uh, listeners, if you're not taking notes yet, start now and listen to all these bands. It's very important. It's happened the last time Jeff was on. <laughs> oh, we got really weird last time. <laughs> Wait, Grade played twice in the same festival? Yeah, because yeah, somebody canceled. Someone canceled, and I missed, I drove down from Cleveland and missed Grade and was like distraught. And then like they just played the next day, and I was like, oh my God, life I is good that. again. Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. Wow, that's awesome. Coalesce and Converge played that day. They were both great. Yep. And Cola, what's funny about that is, uh, well, Crazy Fest was past my time because I left Louisville in 95. And okay. I think maybe... You, I don't, maybe there's an age gap, but it's not that big. It's not that big. I mean, this must have been, when was that? 97. Well, how old are you now? Yeah, 97. I'm 34. Okay, so there's a three-year age gap. It's not that big, but it's one yeah, of those same. things where it it gets smaller as you get older. Yeah, right. But if you go backwards and you think, when I was 18, you were 15. Right. When I was 17, you were 14. Like, those kinds of things make a difference because when I was 18, I left Louisville. Right. Therefore, like, if I went back three years and thought of everything that I did from 15 to 18 is all the stuff that you would then do... When you were gone. From after Louisville. I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy Fest happened. Initial Records didn't even move to Louisville until after I was gone. So really? I didn't they were know a Detroit they were, label. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, they were... So, they were specifically West Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, which is the richest suburb... I think at the time it was the richest suburb in America. Well... And it's where um, uh, Bob Seger lives, and I think the I think the riches lived in that neighborhood or next to Bob Seger, some you know, in in that area. And uh, Andy, Andy, right? Andy started that label, I think, when he was in college, or right when he got back from you know, I I don't know a ton about that guy's life, but because I, I always knew him peripherally as the guy who sort of weirdly invaded Louisville. And I don't mean that in, in derogatory. I mean, it's just like, wow, this, this guy yeah. outside of Louisville said, took a weird interest in Louisville specifically. And like... Yeah, it was the Louisville scene label, definitely. Essentially yeah. like became like, even though they put out loads of stuff, like did they put out like Jejun and stuff like Anakin that? And Dagger and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they put out yeah. loads of other stuff. But it all weirdly, in the same way that Chicago felt like it was the or Touch and Go felt like it was the Chicago label. Mm-hmm. Like, Initial felt, had that feel to it where it's like, oh, this is like the Louisville label that's not actually from Louisville. Mm-hmm. And they didn't move to Louisville until, I think, 95, like right when I was gone. And Crazy Fest didn't happen until after they had moved to Louisville. Sure, yeah. So I missed I missed that whole era. I'd never been to one of those festivals. But what's funny about Coalesce is I started a band when I lived in Baltimore with the drummer from Coalesce, who, which was Sauna, the drummer from... Mm-hmm from sauna was the drummer from coalesce you'd never guess i know and that and and i he obviously was in this band who played there there was a weird opportunity for us to have encountered each other like kind of in a different time of our lives that just never like we basically just missed each other in this one instance and then weirdly came it's similar to what we were talking about earlier about like weird loops you know like weird life loops where it's like it comes back around and you're just like this is weird to think about 
the instances where we might have even been in the same room. Yeah. Even you and I being at Crazy Fest is like a weird thing. Yeah, that is crazy. We're in a band together. We never talked about like we were both at this festival seeing like all these amazing bands. I just had a flashback too to their catalogs. They were like the first company that had catalogs with like cute like girls with short hair like wearing like the t-shirts. Yeah. And I still like love getting them. Of course. For the pixie cut. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't. Yeah, like. Hold on, let me dim the lights. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I think all that stuff Do any of them have glasses? It was that or like the Victor catalog that was like we're gonna kill you or whatever yeah i I what's funny is i think all of that stuff and i'm not totally i'm not the best person like i'm not the the foremost authority on that stuff because some of it was past my time and some of it was from older people in that scene that i looked up to but i was definitely not i couldn't call myself a peer it's more like again the age gap in retrospect not that big but it's right. big enough at the time to be like, I'm a 15-year-old kid, and this 18-year-old kid is in this touring band and on this label and all that stuff, and it seems... Everything you can never imagine doing for yourself. Everything. Yeah. You know, it's like, they put out records. Yeah. Like, all these things where you're just like, this is... I can't even fathom what yeah. they're doing. And it's so... It's quaint now when you look back on it and think like, well, this is the kind of stuff that, I, you know, we can... We do all day long. Like, all the time. You know, right. and everybody... It's like... We've all done that. Hold on, everybody. Screensaver just kicked on. The last time I did it, we crashed. Oh. Oh. Screensaver kicked on. It said power saving mode. The last time we did that, we crashed. I shouldn't do that, but definitely okay. You say. Looks like we're okay. I I talked to this uh, comic book artist from Chicago. It was like moving to Chicago the next day, and she came in. And uh, that happened. To do come back in, and I was like, um, nothing, I nothing here. Only recorded sure. seven minutes of the whole podcast. You were definitely right. This get me, but you're okay. What's her name? That comic book artist, uh, Lucy Nicely. Lucy Nicely, it's a good name. She wrote yeah. a number of books, and the most recent is this amazing uh, comic book memoir cookbook. Cool. So she'll tell stories, and then she'll have. Detail. It makes me feel like I can cook because when there's drawings, I understand. Right. But anyway, sorry for I that. I love it. <laughs> hey, what were you saying, Jeremy? Sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, no. It's all good. Um, we're going to edit this out anyway. I was going to say I'm trying to figure out a way where I was enough so that you can edit it and it's not that crazy. But uh, So, yeah, the age gap wasn't that big, but it felt really big to me. And to answer that, what you were talking about, how I got into punk rock was uh, – the first concert I ever went to, first concert I ever tried to go to was the Injustice for All tour yeah. uh, from Metallica. In 19, I think it was 88 that they came, 88 or 89, they came to Louisville. And uh, my grand, I was raised by my grandmother. My grandmother was totally fine with me going, didn't really care. But my mom, at the time... Was a big Cliff Burton fan? <laughs> was Yeah, was a was much bigger Cliff fan. And she and, was like, no way, that band's dead to me. <laughs> and... Um, it wasn't their fault. <laughs> yeah. She, um, yeah, but they're a victim of circumstance. Mm. Baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Uh, and so she, uh, I, I don't remember the whole situation at the time, but I remember being like young enough to where I certainly had no authority. And right. it was established. I was not allowed to go see this satanic death metal band or whatever, you know, as far as anyone else was concerned. I saw that tour. It was really good. Sorry. 
I'm just, yeah, <laughs> thanks, man. Um, <laughs> Satanic death metal. Yeah, exactly. That's all right. My girlfriend's parents think that of what I do. No, I know. That's amazing. the thing. It's like any heavy music at all is just satanic death metal. <laughs> Stupid. So, someone recently told me that there's a version of Injustice for All Now with the bass turned up that's called Injustice for Jason. <laughs> oh my God. I, I don't know if I isn't that? fully believe that. I think it's last good record. Someone, I, I guess, added yeah. bass to it's it. It's actually my favorite Metallica it, record. I, right there with you. But, uh, isn't that such a good title? <laughs> and Justice for Jason. <laughs> I think they're reissuing it, right, as And Justice for Jason. <laughs> they should. I um, this is a whole other podcast, but Metallica, <laughs> by the way, have have the best business management of any band I've, maybe since Led Zeppelin. They're like, like in terms of yeah, in terms of what they have accomplished from a music industry standpoint is terrifying. I mean, in a great way. Like, the whole fact that their entire catalog is now reverting back to them. Completely. It's, it's all in blackened. It's all, nuts. They're all really? Entire, I didn't know that. All their of entire it. catalog. So crazy. So when the Black <laughs> Album hit really big, right. know, it became, like, commercially, it, I think it, from a label standpoint, it must have become really obvious at that point, like, this is weird. Like, this is unusual for a band five albums in to have escalated every album. And now their fifth album is their biggest, where we thought that they'd never be bigger than their fourth, where we thought they'd never be bigger than their third. And it kept escalating, and I think they had one album left or two albums left in that contract, and so they renegotiated for a contract extension. And... This was like nobody knew that. Nobody knew. There was never talk about this when it happened, like any details or that there even was a contract extension. It came out last year that the terms of the contract extension in 1991 was that they would extend to like whatever it was, 14 albums or, you know, how many albums it was. And at the end of it, when they delivered their last record, their entire recorded catalog would revert to the band. Insane. Uh, and they delivered their last record, that Death Magnetic was their final record in their contract, and the entire catalog, all the way back to Kill 'Em All, now reverts 100% to the band. Oh, they're just like going on nostalgia tours now forever. Forever. Yeah, and, and so now they, now they have a label, which also explains why they never reissued or remastered any of those records, oh because they've held on to that as like, a, like, we will hold off on doing this until we own everything. But it makes sense now. Right. But there was never, like, there was all these people all along being like, why do they never remaster those records? Why, like, everybody repackages and remasters everything. Like, records that are nowhere near as seminal as those records get that treatment. Why do they never get it? And then it turned out like, oh, this is all... Super smart. Super, super canny business. Did you, was, and, that the, was that 91 contract the same? I heard this, that Metallica had put it in that contract negotiation that they got paid to record. Oh, I love that. I have no idea. That they yeah, that when they great. would go into the studio, they would get paid. It was a salary. Oh, like yeah, a salary. That's not, yeah. a, that's not unheard of. Okay. Um, even Thursday, in the height of our major label craziness, we got a uh, salary when we were recording and also living stipend. And um, Yeah, they were like per diems, essentially. Right. Right? Yeah, they were wild per diems. And then we would have like, you know, here's $10,000 for new equipment. Nobody needed a new equipment. We had been touring for five years. You know what I mean? Yeah, but ultimately yeah. all that stuff came back. I mean, oh, yeah. except you're not on the hook Except for that it. we, yeah, after the second record, we asked to be let off with $2 million unrecouped, which is essentially saying, like, this is a loan that will never get paid back. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that you don't have to file for bankruptcy <laughs> right. for. Yeah. 
It's like a free default. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Want, like a default with no credit problems whatsoever. <laughs> it's got to be such the antithesis of art. And I go, going into a label as a way to, you know, I guess almost be the intermediary for artists is that you want to be in a band, you want to write music, and all of a sudden, oh, I have to deal with this shit. It's like when you're an adult and you go, wait, I, my dad's not doing my income tax anymore? What the fuck is this? And it's right. really frustrating and it's a lot of, oh, it's really confusing. I'm fascinated by how mm. it all works from a standpoint of licensing and where does the song go and you know oh wait what do you mean you don't have your masters like that blows my mind and it's all these right. things that are just set up like yeah that. and um, yeah and being friends with people like jeff is fascinating to me because it's a window into a world that i always that i always worked against i sort of i worked like the the, the label was started inspired by stuff like discord and touch and go yeah these artist friendly deals that were 50-50 net royalty splits, and everything was really just like we're behaving like friends who happen to have a business venture of some sort. And the business is kind of secondary to the fact that we've made this cool thing together that we love. Like, it's an excuse to yeah. keep working together. And, like, I'm really bad with keeping in touch with friends, but I'm really great with with keeping on top of business stuff. And so it's a great excuse for me to keep in touch with people that I might not otherwise keep in touch with and i know this because i see all these people that i was close to at some point that i don't have any any real like working relationship with but all i do is work and so all of those relationships kind of just fell by the wayside you know and and not not in like a tragic way i mean it's just like oh i realize i haven't talked to that person in 10 years and they're totally cool but i realize it's because i've had no working relationship with that person and so do you consider it work though no well some of it some i don't of it yeah certainly. i mean i've sure. gone and helped out and certainly some of his work yeah i mean i i guess i do i mean i don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of like it never feels like work because i love what i do i do love what i do but it to- yeah it totally feels like work it's not always like i mean i love my girlfriend and i love being in a relationship and i love the stability of that relationship and i'm I want it to grow. Like, I love the idea of having kids and getting married. But that relationship is work. Like, there's work to it to keep, you know, sure. it's like you always have work, like working with people. How big is my choir that you're preaching to right here on the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude. It's, you know, and it's, it's like, and, it, yeah. but, and that's, not, that's not a bad thing. No. That's, and I that's love the, that. That's the important thing that most people don't realize. That's the right. important thing that a lot of people don't realize is like, you, you can't demonize work. Yeah, because, the, the most important part of dream job is job. Yeah, I mean, because the longer that you, I mean, if you acknowledge the jobness of it, then it gets to be a dream for longer, you know. And like, and it's that way for me. Like, I years ago I stopped thinking of the idea because it's it's easy to romanticize that adage of like, it's not really. It never feels. Not a day goes by where it feels like work because it's my dream job. And it's like that's not true. I mean, if I said that, then I'd start to feel like maybe it wasn't a dream job anymore once it felt like work. And I think that's unfair. And that would set me on like a weird track to be like, oh, well, I always was told that this is supposed to never feel like work. And now it does. So I guess it's not actually cool anymore. It's yeah, like, no, that's the punk mentality right there. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work to do it right. And again, this is a thing where like friends like Jeff come in handy in that sense because he's had relationships with other labels and other experiences in where – where I hear it and I'm like, okay, like this, this sort of vindicates what we do and how hard it yeah. is to do what we do because it's hard to do things right and do right by people. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Like it's, it's much easier 
to screw everybody over mm-hmm. because you can do that without cause you can you can basically like I put out this record and then I just didn't look back you know and I never thought about it and the money keeps coming in and I've seen good people like people that I genuinely love burn those kinds of bridges over and over again like actually sincerely good people who run labels and just shouldn't have run labels and it's like this would have been great if you had only done your own band because it's really your own thing right but once you put other you put other people's creations in your hands right. and you essentially put your fate like their fate in your hands and you weren't capable of it and you weren't responsible for it and then it just right. sort of flames out in this really bad way and like i have seen obviously there's like you and i jeff and i have talked about this before about labels that are like companies in general that are maybe actually evil-minded you know they're they're masterminded to take advantage and exploit other people and then there are labels who are just irresponsible they're not bad people like they're really not bad people i know i I know there's nobody in this room who's collected punk records for longer than five years that isn't aware of labels who are run by nice kids who had great taste in music yep and who just had no right being in charge of someone else's future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's, that's so funny. It, it's like my wife has told me this story that I'm going to appropriate as my own. She used to book bands and yeah. she, you know, would take a band to like shows like Jeff would put on back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, some kid who had the best of intentions, but at the end of the day didn't have the money. And she was like, well, guess what? We're going to walk to the ATM. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to figure it out, totally. you know, and it's it's like exactly that best of intentions because you want to put on a good show, but yeah. you need a little more than that. And, you yeah. know, it's it's funny, too, that you say that, because like the, I think the reason that we continued for 300 plus shows was that I would have a backup fund if nobody came to the show, because it's like, well, if I didn't get the word out there, it's not your fault. You came here from friggin Tennessee to play a show. Yeah. And like pasta and a Florida crash that isn't really <laughs> worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that was like the one thing that actually some of my friends thought was totally not punk that like I had I had a bunch of like little jobs on the side. I even wrote for like penthouse letters and stuff on the oh, side. I remember. Yeah, that's right. You remember that one. <laughs> and uh, and I would keep like, you know, $150. If no one came, at least I would have some money to give the band, you know? And I think it's true. If you're not ready to look out for people on a certain level, then don't go there. You know, yeah. like you're And I wasn't ready meal. for the longest time. I totally fell into that cycle early on. And I think seeing it and being like having such a severe my conscience wouldn't allow me to continue doing it the way that I basically I had been doing similar to what we're talking about where it's like I put out records and I had the idea at the time cuz I started the label in 95. I'm trying really hard to get back to your question don't worry, <laughs> original question you, but um, trust me <laughs> but i i don't uh, remember it so, it's so I, I started i started the label <laughs> jonah moved on yeah, yeah. uh it was like 20 minutes ago bro in 95 and probably the first like seven or eight years i didn't keep really any accounting to speak of i mean it was like it was exactly what i'm criticizing now that I'm only able to criticize because i fully went through it like i saw it yeah and it also made me like, I'm able to criticize it. I'm also able to empathize with people who are in that situation because I knew, like, heart of hearts, that I meant no wrong. Like, I really, I basically just had eyes bigger than my mouth kind of situation where it's like, I want to do this and I want to do this. And and I was obsessed with the idea of building it to where somebody else besides me cared about it. And, like, that was my goal. It was like, I want to make somebody care. 
you know, and I want to be able to sell enough records to do another record and then to do another record. And that was it. That was like as long term as it was. Right. And then once once it got to the point where it's like, oh, it's enough money that I could do two records at once was when I started to realize like the only reason that that is true is because I owe people from three records ago or four records ago for what we've sold. Right. And it was a mess. It was a total mess. And it's like one of those things where I knew I knew better going into it enough to have kept the receipts for everything all along the way and kept records of everything. I just didn't account for any of it. So it's basically like I'd have piles of everything that shows proof that these transactions happened with no organization whatsoever. I didn't own a computer. I had no cell phone. Like this was – it was all just run out of a bedroom on as meager means as possible. And then I had just – it caught up to me at some point where I was like, I have this great opportunity to put out this record that I, I could only dream of doing. But the reality of it is the only way I can pay for that is because I have not paid somebody else. So you were a bank. Yeah. And so, so we, I, there's a point where I basically stalled as much as I, but my fear at the time was like, if I stop long enough to accrue the money to pay the people that I owe, then we will have killed the momentum of the label, and then I'm then what you know. And so I was couldn't figure out, and it's probably unrealistic to think that way. But in my head at the time, it was like, no, this really is like if I don't keep this going, right. really active, everybody's going to forget about it instantly. That's what I would think too, honestly, just because of how short attention spans are in the music world. Yeah, and I got really nervous, and I was like, felt trapped in a corner. And there were like, there were things, you know, like I owed Cerber Shoal money. But ultimately, I owed Cerberus Shoal money because I agreed to a deal that was so dumb. Like, it was a bad deal on my part. Like, it was a bad, it was me, it was just an absurd deal. It was basically giving them, like, it was, like, giving them way, way, way more than anybody could sustain. You know, like, no label could sustain what I was offering them. But it's because I loved them so much. Like, I love their music so much. And that was... The big turnaround for me was that first experience of like something I love so much that I have spoiled. You know, like I've right. essentially screwed this up because like the first really shining example of like great intentions that just blew it. You know, it's like, well, I only did this. I only gave you like all this free product and essentially 70% of the royalties and all of these like various things. I'm like, you know, this is, I mean, this will bankrupt. I have no way to actually make this work. Like, I can't actually make this work. Like, there's no way for me to pay you what you're owed and ever have me be in the black at all. Like, I can't even make zero and be able to pay you what you're owed according to the deal. But the I also realized... The you do, the more in, in debt you'd be, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I also realized, like, that's not their fault. Like, I can be mad about it all I want, but it's a deal that I agreed to because I wanted to do this thing. And it was basically like tons of life lessons and these few encounters at that time how old were you at that time maybe 23 yeah god yeah roughly i mean i started i started the label at 18 Mm -hmm. so maybe it was like five or six years into it just enough to think you knew what you were doing right yeah exactly (laughs) especially at 23 where you think you can do anything so it was five years into it It 2000 i think 2002 yeah 2000 was when this so five years into i was 23 22, 23. And I was just like, I just have to, I have to fix this. 
you know, like, and I have to sort of start over, not start over as far as the perception on the outside is, but internally I have to, I can't, this can't go any further because if we ever have an artist who's any bigger than this, then this turns into a giant disaster really quickly. Was it all you? Is there no one else? Yeah, it was all me until, uh, until Oh four. So like, yeah, the first nine years. No business person at all. So this is all hacking when you learned on your own. What's that? So this is just all stuff you had to learn on your own to keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's really admirable, but it's also scary. It's weird though, because I think the only, I think doing it that young made it less scary. Right. Because it, I was too, it's like when you, it's like if you start skating when you're 10 and you become amazing by the time you're 16 or 17, you never have a chance to be aware of your own mortality right? and think like, wait, normal people don't jump downstairs. Normal people don't fall 60 times in one day. Normal people don't come home with like ankle sprains on a really regular basis. These are things that normal people encounter once in their life and then talk about it forever. And you're like, oh, there's that time I slipped on the ice and my knees swelled up like a baseball and, and then I couldn't walk for a week. And it's like, but skateboarders have that happen Every week, 70 yeah. times a year, you know, where they're like, oh, remember that weird thing that like grew out of my ankle? Because it, it's like all these things that are super unnatural, but you're in it and you start at a young enough age to make it become norm where you're never aware of your own mortality until you quit. Yeah. And this was the thing with the label where it's like I was never aware of how scary it really was or which was the good side of it because it allowed me to keep going and it allowed me to have faith in something that nobody else had faith in. Right. And nobody around me had faith in it. Like really sincere. And that's not – I don't mean to like – I'm not trying to play up the drama of that. But right. it is like the closest friends I had, bandmates, all of them were like, when are you actually going to get a job? Like a real job? Like when – like what do you do for a living? And it's like, this, this is what I do. And they're like, well, this isn't really work. I mean, this is not really a job. You're not really like, this isn't going to work, you know? And everybody around me, people I really trusted and believed in really thought that. And it wasn't because they were bad people. It's because they had a perspective on it that I did not have. Like, they could look at it from the outside and be like... But they sound like they had similar backgrounds. So if you're basing this on a model of touch and go and discord that we all know... Yeah, but and I mean, like, work. in retrospect, how rare is that, though? Yeah, I think that's uh, that the is. Thing. There's only two. <laughs> I think you're. Un- I think when you're in it, you're unaware of how how unlikely it really is to succeed. Yeah, because at the time it was like, yeah, I can do this, you know. But it is when you look back on it now, like you were saying, the touch and go Discord thing. You're like, there are not a lot that <laughs> right. had that model because that model is also like it's super artist mm-hmm. friendly, and I would never do it differently. But it's much harder to sustain. Because when you're splitting everything, but you're taking all of the financial risk, the risk, yeah, it's really hard to sustain. I mean, it's the it's the only way I could ever imagine doing it. But it is, it is a thing where, like, you know, if you're like, I'm on the hook if this fails, right? You lose and, if it loses, but everybody wins if it wins. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, if this tanks, I have to figure out a way to keep the lights on and keep the staff paid and like all that stuff. The band. You know, it's it it hurts their morale and it hurts the whatever they put into it, which is no small feat. You know, I mean, the bands that we have, like they have rehearsal spaces, they have rent, they have all these things as well. But it is that thing where it's like, if I've invested 
enormous amounts of money on something, a hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in something, and it fails, I'm I'm just on the hook for it. You know, I just have to figure out a way. It's not like I then come to the band and be like, well, didn't work, and we all agreed to spend all this money, except I'm the one who spent it, so now <laughs> you guys have to pay your half. Like, that does, I, I don't get to do that. You know, like, that doesn't work. And so I realize how difficult it is to do, but I think if I had, it's like when people write and they ask, hey, I really love, you know, this record or that record or what you guys do. It's like, I love the Thursday Envy split and I love the way it looks and I love the way it sounds. And like, I love how you guys have everything set up. How, like, I want to start a label like that. Like, what should I do? And it's like, A, I don't really know because starting a label now versus starting a label like pre-internet is a completely different planet. The other thing is, it really depends on how old you are in a weird way. It's like, I started this when I didn't know better. Mm. And I started this like before I would realistically hear out people who were like, I started, I did this and I went broke, you know, and this Mm -hmm. ruined my life. Or like, you know, the people that I would talk to, looping back to Jonah's question, the first actual concert I went to was Ozzy Osbourne, Sepultura, and Alice in Chains, which I thought was awesome. It was 1990. It was the No More Tours tour. Or 1991. I don't remember. But it was sometime around there. And I did that thing that kids do where I instantly escalated to something a hundred times more underground and cool with the very next show that I went. It's like I went to that show at like an arena, Louisville Mm -hmm. Gardens. And then the second show I went to was Endpoint, Son of Dog, which is another (laughs) Louisville band. Uh, maybe in Kendall, or maybe whatever in Kendall was called before they were called in Kendall. Right. Uh, they were called something before that. But yeah, they were called something before, before the in Kendall. Yes, they were <laughs> called something before in Kendall. Okay. Uh, and I think maybe they played that show, but I could be making that up. It was the Catharsis record release show. Oh man, they were so fun. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was in an Elks Lodge in Louisville, Kentucky, that they had rented out for the night. And I got there because I had no idea how punk shows are. And I, I was, you know, I knew nothing about it. And I showed up in a tie-dyed Nirvana t-shirt that I made at home. Yes. Uh, and ripped Bugle Boy jeans. <laughs> like, Bugle Boy jeans with, like, ripped holes in the knees. And This is what Jeremy's wearing right now. Just in yeah. case <laughs> and, um, I haven't heard the term Bugle Boy in so long <laughs> that I'm still kind of reeling from that. It was, yeah, it was, um, they were a, a punk clothing company in the oh, early oh, 90s. Oh, I had them. Uh, yeah. Um, Bugle Boy. Just trying to remember where they went. They were the pants that I wore when I was husky, which is, which is another term for fat. Oh, I was husky. Uh, I wore yeah, the husky jeans. I was a husky, husky kid, and therefore I wore, I wore husky, husky tough, jeans. I wore husky tough skins. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Toughskins were the like the little kid or like the elementary school brand of jeans for fat kids. Uh, no, or I think just for, for kids everybody. But I don't know. Tough them in the Midwest they're called Toughskins. Toughskins sounds like a condom. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, I mean, as was it T U F F? No. Oh, that's a blown opportunity right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I was a husky. Huskins. would be the way I would go with that. I was on the Huskies marching band, and let me tell you, <laughs> oh, that's when different. it says Huskies and you're Husky and you're holding a saxophone marching in the cold for a football game. See, not. that's no, that's a cool look. <laughs> that's a super cool look. I had an ascot. Uh, <laughs> now that is a super cool look. Yeah, it and is. you can pull that off. <laughs> yeah, if you can. But I, yeah, so I, so I showed up and I was wearing 
the 91 Air Jordans, which just got reissued last year that I desperately (laughs) tried to get and found out they're like $450. (laughs) Um, But uh, that's what I showed up to this show. I don't know any better. Also, I showed up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) and to an Elks Lodge. So it's already – and these are all things that I don't know. I don't know any of this insider information. So I show up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I am the only person (laughs) there in the middle of a parking lot for an Elks Lodge, which doesn't make any sense. Like, in retrospect, it looks like – I, straight up, like it's set up for an abduction. Like, but I'm just trying to, like, I'm trying to entrap somebody. Uh, so, I show up. I wait for like an hour, and then people start rolling in. And they're not people coming to the show. There are people. They're in the. It turns out way later that I would find out that it's like Duncan Barlow and and Chad Cassiter and like the the Endpoint crew. They were all coming to build the stage for the show at Elks Lodge, right. which they would then tear down and throw away after yeah. the show, which ended up being like hugely influential on me because I would see that and I was like, man, this, it broke down a massive barrier really quickly for yeah. me, which is like, you don't need anybody to do a show. Like you can do a show on your own. Like concerts, you don't have to have concert people. You know, like you can like as a kid, I'm just like, wait, there's no there aren't any like weird it. It broke down like so many music industry myths so quickly, you know, because I'm just like, oh, man, there aren't like weird slimy people with like comb overs and and all that (laughs) here trying to get like put hands in people's pockets. These are just kids, you know, that look cooler than me because none of them are wearing bugle boys (laughs) and a tie dye Nirvana T-shirt. But they're kids. They're like people maybe a few years older than me who just have the vibe like they've got their shit together. You know, they're just like, all right, we're here. We're, we know what we're doing. Right. Whether they did or not. So they come in at like five o'clock. They assemble the stage. By seven o'clock or so, you know, it was an all ages show. So it, it would start earlier. And I think there were four bands. By seven o'clock or so, people had really started to file around to go to the show. And that night was so many firsts because it was like my first punk show it was the first time I had saw somebody build a show from nothing and it was the first time I staged Joe it's the first time that I was in a mosh pit uh, it was like first time I had been within like spitting distance of a live band you know like all these things that ended <laughs> up having it was the first time I bought merch at a show like all of these things that you do like that are part of it all happened in one shot. And in that same way that like when you're a teenager and you're just like, I'm going to absorb everything at lightning speed, you know, and like I'm going to become this culture faster than anyone can even imagine. That's the kind of thing that freaks parents out because you can't keep up with it. You know, like when you're outside of it, you're just like, wait, like it seems like indoctrination. Yeah. It's like three months ago. Yeah. You were really into Simon and Garfunkel. And like Michael Jackson. And now you just listen to like crazy straight edge hardcore. <laughs> like I don't understand. You know, it's that thing where the timetable doesn't make any sense. But when you're a kid, time slows down yeah. so much. And you're just like, it seems like two days gone by is 48 hours of missed opportunities to have completely changed your identity. And to have completely absorbed like whole new parts of this culture that you want to be an expert at. 
And I was totally that. I was like, I want to be an expert at this. Like, I want to be, I want this to be my life. It's and also like, inherent, I think. Yeah. There's that, that oft-quoted uh, George Harrison line, which is the first time he heard sitar, he said, this sounds familiar. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is it, totally when you find your identity. Yeah. It changes everything. When you're like, oh, this I went from Van Halen to Minor Threat in about a day. Yeah, it's <laughs> when it happens and you realize it vindicates it 20 years later, mm-hmm. 25 years later, you go back and you're like, well, that was real. You know, I mean, right, that was, here I am. It's, yeah. I mean, it, you know, that was like clearly, it's not like I retreated back to Poison and, you know, and like, and Twisted Sister and all that. It's not like I was like, oh, I dabbled in, because you see that. You see, like, I, I, you know, I know people that I went to high school with, like grade school and high school with that I'll go back to Kentucky now and it's like, oh, they were super into hardcore like in high school, but they're very into Nickelback now. You know, or they're very, it's like they found, Sounds blasphemous to me. they found their identity and their identity was not punk rock. Right. You know, and like, that's the vindication to it for me is where it feels like I can't imagine anything else, you know, besides like how, besides that culture, like it was, it made me who I am. And so going back to it, I traveled all those bands really just to be a part of it. Like I just wanted to be a part of it. It's like I went to high school with Ben from Falling Forward. So he and I were sincerely good friends. I was a year older than him, and we were sincerely close friends. And Falling Forward were the baby band of that era, you know, because they came up like they were basically second generation of, of that that scene because they came up listening to Endpoint and Guilt and those kinds of things, but they were younger. But they really took a hold on that city really quickly. I mean, they were uh, partially because they had a singer who had a, quite a voice, you know? And so, like, right. yeah, definitely. They had this like post hardcore crossover at the time when that was really starting to take off, when like Sunday Real Estate yeah. and even Quicksand, who were like a heavier version, but you know. This stuff that was like, oh, it's really melodic, heavy music, you know? And um, it's funny because in such a short period of time, it felt like they were the biggest band in Louisville, you know? Where it's like, oh, these kids, these kids are all in high school, you yeah. know? And like, yeah. and they're just, their shows are absurd, you know? Yeah. There's like a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred people, these shows, like just obscene. And then, then we would go, we would travel. And I just wanted to be a part of that world. And I got super mocked, like, when I was a kid. Like, when I was a teenager, like, in Louisville, there's very few people who were actually good to me. You know, there just weren't. I mean, that's a totally truth. Like, I was not cool. I was not in that circle. Most of those people were not necessarily devoted to, but, like, really spent a fair amount of time, like, mocking me and trying to, like, keep me out of that world or not, at least not at letting me be a part of it and yet they wanted to be so inclusive of everyone yeah but I, uh, that's it wasn't true no no, yeah. no, no. i mean never that is. was all an aesthetic never is. yeah and um it's like who are you why do you want to be here well because i like the music why well shut the fuck up yeah and it was it was skate culture shit. was like that too yep, you know i was shit. i was like super ostracized and all that <clears> stuff <throat> and that's why i didn't start the label in Louisville. and i waited until i went to baltimore because i knew that people would just make fun of me you know, like that it's just like I was in this like weird insular punk world that I wanted to be a part of that that just thought that I was like 
not cool enough, you know, that I was That's too nerdy. So weird because I always thought of you as like king of the scene or something. Because I was like, it's Jeremy from Temperez. Like Dude. everyone loves this guy. He puts out just awesome records. He's from Louisville. He's like, not in the slightest. <laughs> I mean, like the only people, like I can count the number of people who were truly good to me and seemed to not be concerned about like the clickness of it on one hand. Like Duncan Barlow was amazing to me. Really, really amazing. And I'm super grateful for it. And I have a really a soft spot for that guy, you know, for, for everything. Yeah. Because I owe him a lot. Like I owe him a lot in terms of like he was super inclusive at a time when being super inclusive was not cool. And I super appreciated that. You know, I mean this was like I don't know how the scenes that you guys grew up in were, but, like, early 90s Louisville was really divisive. And it was really, like, pretty dead set on not picking and choosing very wisely according to, you know, the powers that be. Who's on one side and who's on the other. And I was never really on that side. And Duncan really, like, in his own way lobbied hard for that because he, whatever it was, like, he either thought that, like, he liked my art or he liked that he, whatever and i can't say like you'd have to ask him but whatever it was to me he was like six or seven years older than me so it took somebody like that with a lot of influence who would say like i like this kid and like i like hanging out with him and i don't understand why he's not cool according to so on and so forth and the falling forward guys were always unbelievably sweet to me and, so, and never saw that. And I think part of it for them is it didn't, it was kind of the elders like talking down that made no sense to them because they were younger than me. Like falling forward guys were younger than me. So I think they looked at it as like, well, right. this is just like a cool kid to hang out with. Like, yeah. And they were all from like the South End and which is like the really redneck part of Louisville. And so they came from a very working class, like poor you know, like, quote-unquote, white trash side of the tracks. And I think for them to be accepted by that world was they looked at it in kind, you know, mm -hmm. with, like, oh, well, there's they really truly were super inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> but there was this whole other scene, like, that surrounded the Endpoint crew that weren't. And it wasn't Endpoint themselves. Right. But it was everybody around them that mm -hmm. really, like, that you look back on now as an adult and they're like, wow, these are a bunch of weird hanger-ons that right. were obsessed with their position that we're like, in order for us to hold this position, we have to be able to keep other people out of it. Right. And the band themselves never participated in that stuff. Like Rob and Duncan and Chad and like all that crew were always super cool. You know, the bands themselves were super cool, but all the people that were in their periphery were terrible. Yeah. You know, like they were really mean to kids, you know, and, and, and it's just a thing. Yeah, it's sort of a tradition, I think, no matter... I, I remember that. You know what I mean? Like the only way that I ever got into punk rock was by being the last place that you could get a show in New Brunswick. It was like, yeah, okay, well, I we'll guess this kid that we won't let play at the Melody Bar or book a, a show anywhere or do this anywhere or like anything, like the smallest place, like, no, you can't. <laughs> like now he's doing more shows and he's offering all of us who have been associated to him shows at his house with yeah. these bands that we love. And then eventually it's like, I guess we have to. Yeah. Well, so... People like Duncan, uh, and when I was skating, Sean Fallbush was this guy that owned the skate shop, that uh, home skate shop, 
in Louisville, which at the time, and I don't know if it's still like this because I'm, I'm not as up on skateboarding anymore, but I don't, at the time, skateboarding and punk rock were intrinsically meshed together. And most of the people that you saw at the skate shop, you also would later see at shows. And so, and everybody kind of hung out a lot. And so people like Duncan and Sean and, and, you know, would be kind of the only reason that I would keep skateboarding and not go fully into something else because the lion's share of the people like that were around the shop were not really particularly super cool to me. And same thing with the music. Like Duncan was kind of the music side of that. Sean would be sort of the skateboarding side of that. And then uh, when I went to college, so I had this idea to start temporary residence in high school based off of this local label in Louisville called Slam Deck uh, that Scott from Metro Shifter, uh, maybe we talked about this earlier, but Scott from Metro Shifter ran. And uh, I really liked what they did because it was sort of discord for Louisville where they totally focused only on Louisville music. Uh, but they also sort of did some, like in retrospect, some weird commercial things that kind of shot themselves in the foot, like releasing mostly tapes, you know, or not doing a lot of vinyl. And I think all that stuff was probably born out of just not having a lot of money. But looking back on it, it kind of, I think, hindered the legacy of a lot of that stuff because there's a lot of... Sets are cheaper than vinyl, though, right? They're super cheap, yeah. And and I think... Didn't it turn out like CDs ended up being cheaper than all of it? But Eventually, totally. Yeah, Yeah, and it's just interesting to think back because at the time, in the early 90s, having a cassette label was not a weird thing. Like, people did it. It was cooler to have... Like, it seemed more established to have a label that put out records, but tapes were still... At least, at the, like, they were dying versus being a niche. You know, like, now people would run a tape label. It would be, like, a niche thing. It would be purposefully a waste of time. I felt like the only tapes I had were... De- <laughs> I feel like bands still made demos on tapes, even after tapes were kind of... Totally. ...past. Like, I remember I, being like, i buy the Buried Alive demo. Absolutely. I mean, I remember... Uh, I, I'm sure I still have the Rodan demo that they were just passing around at shows. Like, they'd go to other shows and give out these demos and that was only nine months maybe like a year before there was a rodan cd you know so it's not yeah it, they it's not like they're making demo tapes to then hopefully make a professional tape they're basically like the demo still exists as a tape and then the idea is that we graduate to vinyl or cd like that whole era was sort of like that it was like oh you're not making tapes anymore so you're on the up it's really <laughs> <laughs> I am literally never thought about this until just this moment. I'm like, holy shit, all demos used to be tapes. And then you sort of realize like they made something legitimate if it wasn't a cassette anymore. <laughs> Plus, I think Scott worked at Kinko, so it made it really easy oh, yeah. to make tapes because you can just... And if he didn't work at Kinko, somebody else that was really close to him that didn't give a shit about robbing Kinko's blind worked at Kinko's. But everybody worked. Somebody worked at Kinko's in every town, right? Yeah, absolutely. Back at Kinko's was twenty four hours. Is why zines became popular because people just weren't watching. Absolutely, <laughs> I couldn't. The Kinko's business model before I knew anything about business blew my mind. Like I couldn't understand because I observed or participated in so much, like sort of just blatant thievery of like free copies and all that thousands by the thousands you know on a weekly basis 
And I've always in my head, and it was always late at night. It's always like two in the morning, three in the morning. And I'd see it and I'd think in my head, like, is there any way that they're making money off legitimate stuff through the rest of the hours of this day that they can make all these stores stay open? Like, I really thought in my head, like, how is this possible? How do they really make so much money that they don't even notice or care? Like, they, it's not even occurring to them. Like, oh, we're like 600 reams of paper short you know a bunch of punk kids over by the paper cutter just cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and leaving all night and no one's paying for a thing it's kinko's is not still longer in business it's fedex FedEx now it's fedex store really i didn't know that fedex bought kinko's and do they is it now technically just called like fedex store fedex FedEx. FedEx office fedex office that's what it is so it's like ups store and fedex office okay fedex just bought kinko's to do and now like exactly that and now it's kind of I guess they caught on because now you have to go to the counter. Yeah. You can't do anything else. You have to go to the counter and go, can I do this, this, and this? Yeah. And there's all kinds of really, really difficult. It's really, really hard to pull off the same kind of. So I guess they did learn. Deception. Yeah. They had to have seen at some point <laughs> being like, huh. I mean, I guess really it's not like punk rock is. Oh, well, now I guess it would be maybe mainstream enough to make a difference. Did you learn all that? Like going into Kinko's and doing that from these guys that were you totally know, keeping you motivated? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, uh, Sean, well, yeah, people like, you know, people in like Guilt and Endpoint, like all these sort of hardcore bands, uh, and even like Rodan and and that crew all did that. Everybody did that. I mean, it was, the other thing about music is like it was starting to divide uh, in the 90s where, and maybe this happened for, for you as well, Jonah, like in Cleveland where there, we were starting, in Louisville, we're starting to splinter off into like, hardcore punk and art rock and i think just prior to me starting to go to shows those things were kind of all one and the same you know like in the late 80s as far as like so we're it's only a few years difference but it makes a big difference when you're a kid but it's like in 88 89 all that stuff so i started going to shows in 90 or 91 and i would hear these stories like two years three years prior where it's like oh Endpoint would play with any, you know, blah, 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 like all these bands. And then I'd start seeing these active splits where it's like, that's a hardcore club, you know, like that's an art rock venue, like those kinds of things where you're like, we're turned into two disparate scenes. And then I would also, there'd be like a weird thing where it's, there'd be hardcore kids who you could see were really pursuing the other side who were like, I want to be over there. Like, I want... In this weird social acceptance, like, anthropology experiment kind of thing, where it's like, you're all the same age, and you're all making music, and you all buy your instruments from the same place, and you probably rehearse in largely similar... Everybody rehearses in somebody's house, and you've you've constructed this weird high school-style social hierarchy, where it's like, I now feel like this hardcore or punk rock that I'm making is not as cool or as intellectual as this thing that those guys are making, which we all made together two years prior or three years prior. And it just sort of, so then there was this great divide and it was around the time that the slant record came out, you know, where it was, and it it wasn't for any reason of those guys at all. I think it was just the, it got so much, press i guess and so much it became sort of this like 
weird bomb that went off. Like, was that you? You put the slant record? No, 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 not at all. I mean, that was way before my touch and go put out the slant record. Okay. And I, but that's what got me. That record is what started the Spiderland records. What started steering me away from hardcore, and it wasn't. So in that sense, that record means everything to me. So hope you dug that. Good news. Podcast isn't over, even though <laughs> it sounds like you just got taken out of it. Uh, we had Jeremy come back on his own a few months after we recorded this with Jeff and uh, talk a little bit about the actual United Nations record, which comes out on July 15th, um, once we kind of had things more worked out. So we had Jeremy come back to talk about how he came involved with United Nations and then talk a little bit about the box set, which comes out on July 15th. So if you don't care about the band... You can stop listening now. Otherwise, this might be interesting to you. So I, my old off the old Timber Residence office was in Manhattan, and Jeff used to come by all the time uh, and just visit, which he still does in the Brooklyn office. And he told me about United Nations then, in like 2006, 2007, but had already committed to putting it out with Eyeball because Eyeball were like old friends of of. I don't know you, if they were you, but I know Yeah, they, they, were, they put out Are you my on old, that record? You are, right? I'm on that record, okay. and they put out my old band, The Love Kill. Oh, okay. And Jeff was involved with the label. Yeah, so... so yeah. I believe Jeff told you you were in the band. In United Nations. He did. Yeah. You had no option. <laughs> I would believe that. That sounds about right. Yeah. In general, for the whole United Nations thing, it's kind of like, yeah, that guy's I remember you told me, he's like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm in the band. <laughs> um, but he... So he... I really liked it. And I wanted to work with him and it, because we were doing this Thursday Envy split around that time. And I really liked that, you know, Nations, the recordings that he had given me. And he was like, well, we've, it's kind of a sticky situation because we already committed to Eyeball because he was part, kind of, right. you know, mm-hmm. totally re- respect that and I'm into it. But uh, right around that same time, Thursday, we're transitioning from Island to epitaph yep is that correct that's correct and he wanted he was like okay well the second record like which i think is going to be a 10 inch that'll have songs you know have forked grooves in it so that the song you never know which song you're going to get when you put the needle down he's like i really want to do that would you want to do that and originally i think the idea was like six song 10 inch or something like that where it just was constantly forked right i was like that sounds awesome and he's like okay Let's make a contract for that before we do, before Thursday does a contract with Epitaph, just in case, like, you know, who knows what could happen with contracts with that stuff. And he was like, I I just don't want something to happen. And then lo and behold, we look back and realize like, oh, we incidentally gave. (laughs) That is a dude who's been through the major label ringer. That's the thing. Exactly. You like, no one talks like that unless they've been through the major label ringer unless they've been super screwed over in long form contracts for right. years sort of religiously unfortunately like but th- but most then, didn't of that they get uh devolution didn't they get that like didn't they get their record back didn't they have a really good lawyer i mean it came out on it came out on epitaph yeah i yeah. think i think when we talked to jeff like they have like he's he, i don't know if it's so much more being screwed over it was just an awareness of how it works you know what i mean no 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 i'm yeah. saying a previous history of being screwed over. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying epitaph. Did. No, 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 not no, at no, all. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I saying, yeah. I think it's just it was to Jonah's point of like spoken like someone who truly is like 
because there's nobody else really that we work with right. who would jump on that that quickly for something that they don't even have material for yet. Right. You know, where he was like, I want to sign contracts for something that we haven't even made yet so that by the time we sign contracts for Thursday's stuff with whoever else, they can't then come back to us afterwards and be like, we also have first right of refusal for everything else that every member of the band does. Is that something that you can do that you can write right up or you have a, an attorney on a retainer? Or like well, that? no, we have like a few. I try and avoid, uh, no offense to lawyers that we work with who are, work, who are listening to They're used to, to being offended. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I true. try and avoid They're it. bottom feeding people. They know what they got themselves <laughs> into. Well, but and there are some great ones. There's some great ones. And I am really lucky. There's a, there's a couple that I work, well, this guy Brad Shenfeld is the best, is the best he's he's a really good dude he's great he's really helpful to us he's really supportive and really sincere about it and came to us as a fan of the label years before he sort of like grew in power as a lawyer long after he had been a fan of the label and approached us you know and that's how the best ones we worked with are because we actually believe that their vested interest in us is not financial you know that it's like no we really want to we have to figure out a way for you to get this in your hands. So you, you know? had this guy or whoever and set At, this thing up with Jeff for United yeah, Nations. Like six years ago. Like we have, well, I, I've got to find it somewhere. And what's funny about it is like the contract uh, has, it definitely has a catalog number attached to it. And I think the catalog number is like 115. And the actual catalog number now that this record's coming out is 240. So it was over 100 releases ago which is over five years easily. It's, you know, six years ago. Because it was right when the first record came out that we did this con. i got to find it somewhere. You should find it. Well, it's funny. Is it 10 inches on our Wikipedia page? That's so weird. So this 10-inch, this... And what's funny, too, is, like, ultimately, the record we ended up doing that would have been, quote-unquote, the 10-inch is a... So there's... it. It's coming out in July. There's a CD version, and which is pretty standard. And then there's a vinyl version, which is two seven inches a 10 inch and a cassette all in all inserted into this customized cardboard platform that then fits into this full color uh like die cut <laughs> uh cardboard wrap so it's it that like tab and lock sort of thing so it like l- folds in on itself and closes so it's like a box set but it's it's a single record like it's a single album it's it's who designed that me and jeff and say who did the art you guys yeah yeah Lord. well we had a couple artists also. yeah we had so you you'll remember the names well steak mountain right i was gonna ask it sounds Ooh. right up their alley Going yeah steak mountain did one of the seven inches steak mountain did one of the seven inches victoria burge berg or burge I, i'm i apologize i don't know how to pronounce her last name because i've only ever read it but she did the constellations that are on the back of the ten inch. Okay. Uh, and then who did the serious business stuff? This guy who just calls himself Mister The, who is an Italian hobo nickel designer. I don't know if you know what hobo nickels are, I don't. but they're literally nickels that, and it got its name from being a common uh, hobo art, like which is a thing when people like hobos will typically and apologies to all the hobos listening to this podcast if I get this wrong, but, uh, they'll trade artwork as that's the barter system. You know, it's basically like 
oh, I made this music box out of things that I found. I'll trade you for this walking stick. You know, like they will trade each other. That's their commodity instead and of money. And they ride the rails to wherever they and need to go. And they ride the rails to wherever they need to go. And hobo nickels are artwork that's hand engraved out of functioning nickels. So they change everything about the nickel into something else. And so I found this guy because they have one of the seven inches in this box set is called Serious Business. And then the B side is called Meanwhile on Main Street. And there's a he so he made a, a nickel that is this guy sort of Phantom of the Opera style wearing it's a carnival guy with like a hat. You know, like the guys who like run the carnival with the big yeah. cloaks and all that stuff with like sort of half of a face. It's like a monster face on one side, like a mask. And then this carnival hat. And so that's the serious business one. And then there's another nickel for Meanwhile on Main Street that's just a homeless guy sitting on a street corner. And they're they're gorgeous. I mean, they're, and mind you, like they are nickels, actual nickels. I insist you give me one of these box sets, Jonah. I will. I will give you one. I, yeah, I remember when you sent me that. I was like... I had no idea what to expect, and I was like, this is the coolest thing this I've ever insane. seen. This is insane. I love it. Why it's, the cassette? Because uh, they originally... Well, so the idea originally was... Jonah Blasphemer. Yeah, well, he... Uh, the, originally, the idea was that we were going to release a bunch of separate singles and whatnot, I think. I don't know. I, I mean, that we were going to do that and then collect them all. Oh. And then at, at some point, it sort of became more... I don't know if we have, I honestly don't think we had a conversation about it. I think at some point it was just like, you know what, let's just keep making music. And then when we've collected enough music to make a record, address all of it and figure out what to do with it. And we all really still liked the idea of doing the separate releases, but we just sort of decided like, what if instead of an LP, like a standard CDLP, what if the LP, quote unquote, was a bunch of random vinyl and other ephemera. The cassette came from, they had made... Uh, we made 50 of this cassette called Illegal UN that we sold on our last tour. Oh. Maybe not our last tour. Maybe last year. We had three songs, and we sold 50 of them, numbered them all, and they sold out, and then that was it. And they never leaked. And people were, like, at the end of the tour, were trying to, like, offer us, like, tons of money from. We were like, that's it. We just made 50. You know how they didn't leak is because no one could play them. Well, yeah. that, that was well, yeah, but also like the quality was not great because they were cassettes. I feel like so that was kind of the point. Yeah, that's pretty funny. And so that is in there. That's basically the only physical artifact from I think our original idea of releasing all these things bit by bit and then collecting them. The cassette is just being repressed and put into this box set as a piece. <laughs> how do you but, decide how many to make? Of this whole thing, like, like you know, for the you're like, making my collectors ten, 10 million. I think it's ten million. I think ten we million. Just at, wow. We want to be conservative. Well, yeah, I, I looked at it as how many records has Adele sold, right? Wow. And then I thought this is not as accessible as Adele, mm-hmm. but it's not far off. No, not at all. It's, I mean, it's more nineteen than twenty-one. Yeah, yeah, it's the Adele formula. It is more nineteen than twenty-one. <laughs> See, true Adele fan, fist bump that shit, dog. Represent. Um, it is more 19 than 21, and 19 is more of a 5 to 6 million seller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 21, obviously, that's going for the uh, 80 to 90-year-old So your, th- your, th- your theory was just take 19, double it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Essentially. I thought, this is going to be twice as successful <laughs> yeah. as 19. Yeah. 
marginally less successful than 21. I mean, you know, uh, you can't reach we, that bar. <laughs> it, it, it was, I think, just... I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, actually. I flew a little bit blind on the quantity of it. Jeff seemed pretty confident, as Jeff can be, about these sort of things, that a thousand sounds great. And I was like, okay. I mean, you know, there's a per unit cost issue that comes into play with that stuff where a thousand becomes kind of the first number that we can hit where it's like, all right, well, now we can at least not have to sell these for $80. You know, like it, if you press three or 400 of that thing and of what I was just describing, then you realize the per unit cost is absurd. You and, know, and, and, I mean, is this something that not that it's not gonna, still absurd? No, the whole thing is absurd. That's why it's great. That's art. Is that, is this something that you guys are going to pack into the van and take on tour with you? Or is this only going to be available on the website? I think that's going to be dictated by, people buying it yeah i mean I, if it if it uh like i wouldn't want be you standard guys to not, lps too yeah think, right? well i don't know i mean that's the yes maybe i think the idea is <laughs> i think the idea is i just formed my own record label yeah i think the idea is if it sells then maybe we would maybe we should make another one like a standard lp if it doesn't sell then obviously we shouldn't i really don't know i mean it well, I think like that's part of the beauty of it too. You yeah, know, like we don't we don't know like it's you know it's like an art project and it's like and you know we're not like a full time touring band so it's like the reaction has been great so far but like we sort of never know so I'm I have no idea how it'll sell I don't know if people will be into it but like that's how cool. many can you get oh wait I don't know when we're releasing this I was gonna ask how many you can get. In time for skate and surf. <laughs> when is skate and surf? Like two weeks. Skate and surf is um, May 18th. Do you want to go? Sh- sure. I'll send you an email. Yeah. I'll send you the info. But you can ask that. I kind of want to go. We should release this. We're release, so we want to release this next week. Okay. Perfect. So you can ask about skate Oh, then great. Okay, we good. actually should probably. Okay. Um, Steven. Yes. So will this be ready for skate and surf? Nope. No. Damn it. <laughs> No, it but will, we will be, be we will be playing some new songs uh, at Skate and Surf from okay. it. Oh, is that oh from the record? From the record, I thought yeah. you meant even newer than that. No, like, not exciting. newer than that, but some songs. That's some Cerberus Shoal shit right there. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, uh, July fifteenth, I believe, is the release date. Okay, which kept getting pushed. We had this really great, grandiose idea of releasing it on Tax Day on April fifteenth, uh, which politically sounded really funny to me but it just became really obvious like oh there's a dick punk rock move that's when joe ramon died oh that's brutal it was wasn't there an issue with like the delivery trucks there's been like uh, there were i I kept hearing like like yeah i think it got incredible there's a lot yeah there's been because this thing is what it is there have been unbelievable amounts of not even unbelievable i've seen it before it's just every time i do a box set something I always think to myself, I've now done four, or I've now done five of these, or I've now done six of these. I was like, this is going to run smoother, and it never does. It well, never does. You've done some really beautiful box sets. I appreciate that. It is they true. never, they still take forever. <laughs> they, I mean, I don't get, in that sense, I'm not getting any more efficient at it. <laughs> like, it's just, it, they still take forever. I think that, um, I would also want to add that, like, we don't want to give everything away about about it, but I do feel like there are some really interesting, like, surprises that people will discover in the box set. Yeah, like, exactly. whether it's 
whether it's visual or like sonically or like I think there's I think I think the people who really like get into it will you know what I mean? That's right? the thing, yeah, because it it's been this you know, it's like me and, and Jonah and Jeff and Lucas uh have emailed so much about this thing back and forth the last year or so. And it's cool because they're what Jonah was saying there's loads of stuff that we haven't even mentioned about it. I mean, that's boilerplate, the stuff that we've talked about. But it's cool because because we were designing it in parts, like in little pieces, it created all of these miniature art events for us where it's like, okay, serious business 7-inch, what are we going to do? And it's like, oh, I don't know. And then you just you tackle that as a release, like as, it's, as if it was its own thing. And then you'd finish that, and you realize that that doesn't have to play into the other records. You're just like, okay, as a unit, it's going to be a part that goes into this larger thing. But that artwork can be completely independent of everything else in here because it's meant to be a collection, which is really nice when you're doing it because you can switch gears completely aesthetically to another thing where you're like, okay, well, now this other thing is going to be like this, and it's going to be all gray. And that's fine because it's not supposed to look like the 7-inch, you know, like the 10-inch and the 7-inch can look like they happen at completely different times by completely different artists. You know, those kinds of things are really liberating to do because stuff like the slant box set, when we were working on that, every part of that was really, really, really attached to the other parts. So it's like whenever you were working on one thing, all the way down to like everything had to line up when... When I would take the box, when you remove the part, the gatefolds and everything out of the box, they have to line up with each other so that when you see that you fan them out, when you see it, you know, all of the the photos on all of them are perfectly lined up against each other when you fan it out. Those kinds of things where I would have to constantly revisit each other one when I was working on one to make sure that they all work. And this was really liberating in that way because it's like, I don't. I don't have to give a shit about so what the other ones look like. If you're making your band's website cool, you're not. Think about how you're going to make your vinyl releases. Fans out there with bands, yeah, There's a lot that goes into it. All right, that was Jeremy Devine. Is it? Are we over? Is it? Done? I think it's fine. Wait, <laughs> let me look. There's I think nobody here. There's no one here. It's just me and Brad. So <laughs> that was Jeremy once again. Uh, Talking about Louisville, temporary residence, and United Nations the next four years, which I think uh, is getting announced today in multiple channels. And we've been working on it for a really long time, so it's really exciting for us, and thank you for indulging us. Uh, as a bonus, um, I think we're going to play a snippet of one of the songs from the record right? that no one has heard before. I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, <laughs> but you know what? If you, if you really care about UN, you're probably still listening, and if you don't, you probably don't want to hear it anyways. Uh, so yeah, this is a clip from the song Serious Business, which will be on the next four years. It comes out July 15th on Temporary Residence. And um, yeah, visit us online, goingofftrack.com, Facebook Going Off Track, follow us on Twitter, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, this is, I guess, the first time anyone's hearing this. So hope you enjoy this snippet and, uh, you'll be able to hear the song in full as well as the rest of the album very soon. So thanks for listening and prepare to have your eardrums completely blown out.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.